Oh, I'm actually going to try to re-record this one, so I've begun scripting. Not what I say, but certainly the quotes and uh, key points. Learning as I go how to write and share these things. So I created a document that I called Faith, Hope, Love, Love. Because I've talked about uh, religion being essentially encouraging us to be selfless. I talked about the Dalai Lama talking about his religion being compassion. So yesterday I had someone ask about uh, absolute truths, you know, good versus evil. And it was, I thought, how I'd connected this quote and uh, the movie. So long story short, it was Secondhand Lions, Robert Duvall, his speech that he gives to young boys. What I found interesting is I wanted to hear the rest of the speech, so I went looking for a DVD. Right? said this in my previous recording. Uh, 20, 30 years ago when they first started adding, not first started adding, but 20, 30 years ago when I was enjoying the additional content on DVDs. I thought we'd just have even more so today. They were starting to see uh, the potential and, and what it might offer. Uh, you know, encouraging people to purchase the DVDs as opposed to renting the movie. So I went looking. I didn't find the entire speech, but it didn't matter because it led me to where we're here. So initially, I was looking how important love is within the Christian religion, the Western, that we miss. Right? Sorry, the quote is, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's important because the quote from Secondhand Lion says exactly the same. And I'm going to read it in a moment here, but I've changed how I'm going to do it. This is uh, from uh, Corinthians. Uh, and I just alluded to the rest of it, right? The uh, off-quoted uh, marriage um, pieces. So I'm actually going to start uh, by reading the entire, not the entire, but the entire section that's often quoted from Corinthians, the Holy Bible. I believe this is uh, the King James Version. Um, but I think you'll see the connection uh, as uh, maybe even a, a leitmotif as I've put together um, a hodgepodge. <laughs> and you'll see why I, I chuckle and why I mention that. I've put together a hodgepodge of quotes. Religious and not. Philosophical, philosophical and not. Um... And they all point to exactly the same. So I'm going to start with the off-misquoted um, love is blind. No. As we talk, love overlooks certain things, but is most certainly not blind. So here we are. Faith, hope, and love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's the Bible. But I go on and I'll quote a movie, a Western movie, Secondhand Lions, and the character Hub, portrayed by Robert Duvall. The young man in their um, care was asking if all the stories they told about their their uh, wild adventures were true. And Hub responds, Damn, if you want to believe in something, then believe in it. Just because something isn't true, that's no reason you can't believe in it. There's a long speech I give to young men. Sounds like you need to hear a piece of it. Just a piece. Sometimes the things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in the most. That people are basically good. That honor, courage, and virtue mean everything. That power and money, money and power mean nothing. That good always triumphs over evil. And I want you to remember this, that love, true love, never dies. You remember that, boy, remember that. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. You see, a man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. And what really struck me was how many people were moved by this piece. And then I quoted one of the comments for two big reasons. Uh, one initially was because he seemed to misunderstand that believing in what's right, honor and courage and virtue, that... Uh, means that you are endowed with agency to decide and to use this guidance. It doesn't mean that you're ignorant or blind to the realities of life. And so the quote, uh, a comment from YouTube by Keith Johnson goes, although I do agree that we hold some idealism in our beliefs, hope is one of the paramount foundations of it. Tragedy and pain and suffering will all endure with the hope that it ends, that eternity provides a never-ending rest from it. I would, though, caution that you need to know what, what you would believe and what you hope in. If it is a lie, it is the worst belief that can and will destroy who you are and all you would ever want to be. So examine truth and belief carefully and place caution in where you go with it.
So initially, I once I went back to now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, what sustains you? Right? Your faith in good triumph over evil. Your hope that good will uh, will win out in the end. They uh, don't sustain you in the face of doubt. Certainly not uh, proof that these things, though worth believing in, aren't necessarily truth. Right? There is no absolute. So what does sustain you uh, in a situation? I mean, today it's a perfect example. What we've all been going through the last couple of years here in 2020, 2021, and soon into 2022, we've been given so much uncertainty, so much hope just to be dashed or to lose faith in those guiding us and giving us reassurance. That is absolutely, um, completely and utterly damaging. So I go on, and again, as I said, when we read this Corinthians, it's much deeper than just love is patience and love is kind. We must remember, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And what does that mean? This is the canonia, uh, koinonia, that I've mentioned before, the communion between uh, God and man and man and God and love of divinity and creation and all the universe and all that happens, good or bad. Um, but agape, right? This is uh, great love. But when we talk about emptying oneself, this is another Greek word, kenosis. It comes from the root kenu, to empty out. And John the Baptist told us about this. He said that of Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. And when you read what kenosis is, emptying, depletion, waning, so you empty yourself of your delusions, of your ignorance, of your negative, even of your evil, and fill oneself up with good, of good works. Right? And what is that? Well, in the Hebrew, that is a word called, or it is a word, uh, chesed, pardon my pronunciation, but chesed, uh, C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Uh, it's a Hebrew word that means kindness or love between people, specifically of the devotional piety of people towards God, as well as the love or mercy of God towards humanity. This is used throughout the Bible. But it is, well, it occurs 248 times in the Hebrew Bible, but in the King James Version, it's translated as mercy or kindness or goodness or merciful or favor or good or goodness. And when you go one step further and you look at right the roots of these words, and I love this is why I mentioned that some of the quotes were from the King James Bibles, but not all. Here's a quote from the Amplified Bible. Right? We often quote, uh, blessed be the meek. Right? But that, again, is a word that comes from Hebrew anaf, uh, which uh, we have some clues to what this actually means. Meek, what they mean by that. Right? In Greek, paus. Uh, 
Pras. Uh, it's meek, gentle, but I'll just boil it down. This is, um, uh, think of taming a wild animal or calming of people who are excited or irritable, irritable, but being gentle, quiet, and friendly, who, like a well-trained animal, they don't succumb to bitterness or anger, right? As with a trained workhorse, it's not simply a matter of passive submission to a stronger force, but involves an active choice of acceptance, right? Because we have this in Buddhism. It's the ox, um, the uh, ten ox drawings, or in, in, um, in Tibetan, it's a uh, white elephant. And we go from, you know... Uh, lack of understanding to uh, lack of control uh, to tenuous control uh, to uh, careful control to eventually um, it's uh, effortless uh, control and direction. So in the Amplified Bible, blessed, meaning inwardly peaceful, spiritually secure, worthy of respect, those that have emptied themselves and filled themselves up with good Blessed are the gentle, now the gentle, the kind-hearted, the sweet-spirited, the self-controlled, not so much the meek, for they will inherit the earth, right? It's a difficult word, but the idea is exercising God's strength under his controls to be great, strong, but gentle, right? Faithful hopeful, but loving and kind. That Sanskrit word that I often translate, often use, karuna, compassion, but my preferred uh, word is loving kindness. Because where love might smother, kindness restrains. Where kindness might not uh, move you to action, love, love, inspires you in the face of almost any doubt. And I go forward because I came across some names for God. Obviously uh, not commonly discussed, but it gives us an insight into what we're talking about here. Because let me give you a further uh, insight into that word hesed. Someone who embodies hesed is known as Hasid, a Hasidic Jew, we would commonly know. And that just means a very devout, like in the Sanskrit, Shraddha. Shraddha isn't just faith. It's commitment and devotion to whatever your path may be. If it's simply doing good works, followed by good works and turning towards truth, well, then that is your path and your faith and your religion. So one who is faithful to the covenant and who goes above and beyond that which is normally required. Right? You don't have to turn the other cheek to get by in this world. Certainly, certainly there are people who don't deserve our compassion. But it does no harm to you to share that love. So I'll go back again to Hinduism and in contrast, karma, meaning action, which Here's another, I've added the action, right? But here is a translation or an explanation that's available off the internet. 
It says, in contrast to karma, which is selfish, right, in Hinduism, in contrast to karma, which is selfish or pleasurable love, it goes into prema or prem. And you notice its root seems very similar to prao in the Greek. Again, this idea of karma, right? It refers to elevated love, prema or prem. So karma has a connection not just to action and cause and uh, effect, but it also talks about an elevated love. Because I go and explain uh, karma as an internal force acting on yourself, right? And how do you um, make your way in a world that is inherently dissatisfying or suffering, depending on your translation? Remember, I'll remind you that dukkha is bad air. Do bad air because sukha means good air. Because we're going to actually talk about su later. Where I talked about it in the last podcast, didn't I? Yes, I did. There you go. See how it connects. Right? So, and this goes on. It talks about karuna being compassion and mercy, which impels one to help reduce the suffering of others. Bhakti, a Sanskrit term meaning loving devotion to the Supreme God. Now, they miss right there. Because bhakti, loving devotion, devotion, shraddha, loving, metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, and mercy. So the same needs to be understood as the devotion. That's shraddha, it's commitment, and it's confidence in the Supreme God. Well, no, what you got to understand is in Hinduism, Vedanta is probably a better way because they're very clear about this. The idea of God is ourselves, the individual. We talked about this, was it yesterday? Sva. Sva means self, right? So you are the agent of change. So loving devotion to the Supreme God is no different uh, to the Christian koinonia, nor is it different to a Muslim. Uh, in Islam, uh, they consider themselves, if we were to translate, uh, it is, um, uh, well, let me think here. I can't, um, how would I put it into English? It is um, submitting to God's will. But what is that? I've said this before. It is good works followed by good works. That's what we're here to do and to turn towards truth. It is no difference. No difference whatsoever. So I again say that bhakti is a Sanskrit term meaning loving devotion to a supreme God, but it actually means it's also loving devotion to each other and the system and the universe and everything within it. So that's why I mentioned Shraddha and Metta. And then I have a quote from Rumi. O lovers, the religion of love of God is not found in Islam alone. In the realm of love, there is neither belief nor unbelief. Like I told you, even Rumi understands that uh, love is what sustains us when uh, faith and hope, confidence, and even bluster is found wanting. Love sustains. And that's why I go to Goethe. Goethe is a German poet, 
philosopher, uh, Christian writer, a believer. He expressed the same sentiment of the love of God along to- alongside the opposite sentiment of a hatred of God in his two poems. And it's where Jung found his term for the collective unconscious, Zele, a universal soul, a fraternity of man, much more like Shakti or um, a Dakini. Right, this idea of a feminine energy that is collective. In Jung, he has his anima and his animus. In us, we are male and female and yin and yang. So, and I'll just quote, when I was a man, oh, sorry, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. While yet... A child and ignorant of life, I turned my wandering gaze up towards the sun, as if with him there were an ear to hear my wailings, a heart like mine to feel compassion for distress. And this could be a translation of a prayer to Avilokitesra, the goddess of compassion, or uh, Guanyin, Guanjurin. Uh, because both in Chinese and Japanese, kanon, uh, in Japanese and Chinese and Sanskrit, the characters all mean one who listens and feels and understands. Right? Compassion for our distress and for our lot. It's the same compassion, that love, that we need to apply to our everyday life. Like in the Buddhist Satipatthana Sutra, an off-quoted sutra that's about mindfulness and uh, anapanasati, uh, to be mindful of your breathing. But the four foundations of mindfulness is what you need to look at, or arguably all you need to look at, with the third one being satisampajana, to bring mindfulness sati, to remember, to be conscious to embody. To embody what? This truth of impermanence, the minimize of the self, because the self is a, an arbitrary construct of our own fantasies. And by applying these concepts, we're able to not only understand the truth of existence as being dukkha, suffering, and its root, its source, the self, and disbelief in impermanence, And at the same time, you understand that liberation lies in that same truth. So here we are, I've spoken of this. This same insight can be found in a Christian, in a Muslim, in a Jew, in a Hindu, in a Shaivist, in a Vedantin, in a Buddhist, be it Tantric, Pure Land, Shinto, you name it. The truth is that love compassion, metta, however you want to call it, agape, whatever you want to call it, what we need to do is not follow rites and rituals and ceremony like is considered a fetter in Buddhism. We need to look at great thinkers like Goethe, who was a free thinker who believed that one could be inwardly Christian, 
without following any of the Christian churches, many of whose teachings he firmly opposed, sharply uh, distinguishing between Christ and the tenets of Christian theology and criticizing its history as a hodgepodge of fallacy and violence. So now you see why I mentioned that he expressed a hatred of God and it just had to do with the idea that there is a fixed, structured rule as to how one worships, how one establishes and maintains a relationship with God, but most importantly that God is defined by another person. God is a personal thing, must be defined personally. I often quote Churgy, who is a Chinese um, patriarch of the Tiantai lineage. Uh, I argue also uh, of the Chan, uh, Zen lineage. He's quoted as saying the, that sentient beings are numberless, as are the doorways to the Dharma of nirvana. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is, as he said, there is no fixed solution. We must find our own path, walk it ourselves, and maintain it. We must be proactive. It's that agency I spoke of. There is no absolute truth, save for we are the agents of change. So if we're going to decide right from wrong, we can't make that decision separated from the situation. We must be within and, yeah, must be guided by these same truths that we've spoken of. So this is why Goethe says that he's not anti-Christian, nor un-Christian, but most decidedly non-Christian. He just didn't feel that dogma was how he could get uh, in connection or... Um, commune with the divine. And I find it even funnier that a year before his death, he wrote a letter where he expressed uh, interest in a group lost to history, mostly, from the Black Sea region called the Hypsisterians. And what's interesting about the Hypsisterians is um, their godhead, just like but, uh, and young later, this idea in all of these other religions, their name for God was just ultimate, right? Again, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, not, I'm off script here, uh, but essentially they just worshipped greater than. I mean, honestly, when you read it, you get this idea that it's not different than Nietzsche. You get an idea of where this was, what was going on in Germany at the time, because Nietzsche actually felt this exact same way. When he spoke about the Ubermensch, this, this Superman, or the Overman, I don't like that translation. But it, it is, if you explain that Uber, not over, but ultimate man, ultimate man, because Nietzsche taught us before, I guess, he really started to have troubles. <laughs> he taught us that the real truth, as these idols, these images of God that we've created, are strictly 
what we know for ourselves, if we carried faith, hope, and love with us, these are the the potential of each and every human being. Just like in the Buddhist, um, we have something called uh, Tathagatagarbha. Garba is a Sanskrit word just meaning a storehouse, like Kshivigarbha. That's uh, um, Dizong in Chinese, uh, Kshivigarbha, and uh, actually I lost my, uh, my point there on there. Neither here nor there. Um, I'll just move on. So, further from that, I wanted to talk about, um, right, how we see God. And as I said, why I found it awesome is that Jung thought he was more like the hipsisterian, where he worshipped um, a godhead. So not, you know, like I said, uh, I don't mean to be a heathen, but not a sky daddy, not somebody up uh, in the sky or, or somebody who is judging us, but the idea that existence our potential is what we need to worship and turn towards, just like Nietzsche. That the uber-mensch uh, is uh, us, the ultimate best example of the human creature, but it's also the image of God. That's what I was getting at earlier. I apologize. It's also our image of God. So we've created this idea of God, but it's really the image of our ultimate potential. But, as Nietzsche said, if it weren't for our um, guts, right, our uh, self-sabotage and our doubt, we would understand this and we could uh, achieve it. Because again, this is our ultimate poten potential. Just like Buddha nature is resident in everyone, Tathagatagarbha, Buddha a storehouse of Buddha nature, or, I argue, uh, there is a synonym for this called the Amala Vijnana, not commonly translated or even talked about because it's problematic. It's perfected consciousness. Right? So it's not nirvanic consciousness where you've completely transmuted and left our existence. Perfected consciousness is the idea to be free of outflows is sometimes a translation, cessation, naroda. It's like what John the Baptist said. I need to make him greater, in this case, my Buddha nature, and make me less my selfishness, my uh, apathy, my greed. So that's why I want to mention the next. So when um, out of the book of Exodus... Uh, one of the first of uh, the three responses given to Moses when he asked for God's name. And the answer was, Eya Asher Eya, which is, I am that I am. But we'll go to this further. It's a little bit more than that. Right? So the word Eya is the first person singular imperfect form of Haya, to be. Biblical Hebrew does not distinguish between the gr grammatical tenses. It instead uh, can be multiple and all at once, kind of a superposition, right? So, uh, Eya Asher Eya can be rendered in English as not only 
I am that I am, but also I will be what I will be, or I will be who I will be, or I shall prove to be whatsoever I shall be, it, on and on, right? I am who I am, ergo sum qui sum, ergo cogito ergo sum, I am, I think therefore I am, I am the existing one. I love it because if you go one step further and you look at the word Asher, it's that, who, which, where, all possible translations. So it's not just speaking God is I am this particular individual. It's saying that I am everything and everything in between. I am you, I am me, and I am everything. Right? Common substitutions in Hebrew are Adonai. Also interesting because Adonai literally means my Lord's, plural, right? Because Adon is Lord, but commonly translated as my Lord, Adonai. Elohim. Elohim is even more interesting because it's not just used in Hebrew. But Elohim, once again, literally means God's, but treated as singular when meaning God. Because if you are talking to God, you're talking to God, in this case, right, in the Moses context. But if you mention Elohim as God creation, that includes you, me, and the space in between, right? And then Hashem, the name in everyday speech, because again, they also use letters in, believe it or not, it's lost in, uh, well, I won't get into it. Um, Simple letters to represent God is used in both uh, Christian and uh, Jewish and um, uh, Islamic uh, traditions. So I jump to the to the next uh, example. Oh, actually, no, I put a little uh, personal. I added a little personal anecdote here. So there's a local church that I was following when they um, moved to online service from the past couple of years, right? And so they were sharing their ministry. And uh, there's a few of these churches that are part of a new movement. They say that it's a reformation in a sense. Why? Because they say that most churches, the vast majority of ministry, uh, meaning the good works of the church, is done by the ministers, the pastors, right? The, the whatever, Not by the lay people or the congregation. I found this funny because they're saying this uh, in this document, but at the very same time, they're calling the congregation saints. They call each other fellow saints. So I find it funny because there's such a disconnect here. First, I don't believe that all of the ministry is being done by, uh, I argue it's the opposite. And what we really need to do is to teach this communion idea, that this fellowship of all man. And secondly, I argue that was the teaching of calling your congregation saints. We have that in Buddhism. There are some traditions uh, where they hold to call each other bodhisattvas. Right? The idea is encouragement, but honestly, if we all have Buddha nature, then we all have Buddha potential. We all have perfected uh, consciousness present. So we are bodhisattvas. Just, um, you know, we're sheep in wolf's clothing. We just have to strip away all of the facades. Right? Because... I like to mention um, from the Bhagavad Gita, Om Tat Sat, I am that. 
right? Om is the sound of Brahman or the ultimate reality. Om is the ultimate sound. It represents all of divinity, you, me, the universe, and everything in between. Tat is the mantra of Shiva. Shiva being this all power, but the idea is what um, impels us. And Sat, it's the mantra of Vishnu, which can also be interpreted as truth, right? So it's I am that, right? When combined, it is the supreme reality, absolute truth, all that is, right? That's Shraddha, right? Faith, Shraddha, is devotion, commitment, and confidence in the prescription, whatever that may be. And I'll quote St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where is there sadness, joy. And I'll jump to Shantideva. If you know me, you know one of my favorite, a 7th century um, tantric Buddhist, I guess I'll say, Madhimakan. Oh, that I might become for all beings the soother of pain. Oh, that I might for all of them that ail the remedy, the physician, the nurse be, until the disappearance of illness. Oh, that by raining down food and drink I might soothe the pangs of hunger and thirst, and that in times of famine... I might myself become drink and food. Oh, that I might be for the poor an inexhaustible source. I mean, that could be Jesus speaking in the Bible. That's Shantideva. Right? And then the Buddhist proverb. Whatever happiness is in this world has arisen from a wish for the welfare of others. Whatever misery there is has arisen from indulging selfishness. This is a common... Uh, Discussion. When someone asks about evil on earth, the, no evil on earth can be sourced to God. God created goodness. All evil on earth is created by man. And understanding that, you understand where this comes from or vice versa. You may see where this silk root brought this philosophy to and from. So again, I'll quote Corinthians, this time 6.12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's why I quoted, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Because as I said, when asked by a young searcher, Right? about absolute truths, I reminded him there is no such thing. Because you can argue that taking a life is absolutely wrong, but refusing to defend others would actually lead to a greater harm. Right? Say if taking the life of one individual would spare the lives of ten, you could also argue that as being right. So it's your agency with hope, faith, and love, understanding of, you know, truth and courage, right? Now, 
as a, I quote to, it's a little out of place, but Susie Kasim, doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. So true. And Richard Feynman, I just like this quote. I, I think it wasn't supposed to be in here, but religion is a culture of faith. Science is a culture of doubt. Now, I put that in there because I actually think that even for science, Feynman got this wrong. Because I use Einstein as example. Think of this man a hundred years ago. Came up with theories that are still to this day being proved. Is correct. But at the time and for years, decades after, nobody believed him. Still to this day, I was speaking to a fellow uh, fellow uh, learner, individual, and he agreed, in fact, uh, said that we're still operating on failed assumptions when it comes to uh, Newtonian physics versus Einstein. right? And then there's still unsolved issues with our universe. So I argue that faith and doubt are two sides of a coin, right? Because ignorance isn't transformed into wisdom, but with faith and doubt, you're able to understand that you may be operating on failed assumptions. And with that doubt, faith and love, one can hope to grow and understand. And Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, like the finger pointing to the moon. It's just pointing to the path. It's not the path. And your moon is not the destination. There is no destination. There's no attainment. In the Bible, I don't know if I've saved that quote, but the Bible tells us so as well. Yes. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Karma and dana. Love is patient and love is kind. Right? Karma we spoke about. It's an internal force acting on you. Dana, off-translated as charity, but it's important to understand that it needs to be given freely, just as the Bible said here, right? Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, it doesn't go away. Oh, that's so true. That's Philip K. Dick, right? But there are cases where this gets some people thrown, but there are times when we not only create, but manage our own reality. And that is another word that I want to mention. Alim. Alim. It's used, it's like, it's uh, another transliteration of Elohim. In Arabic it means who intensively knows. Alahim is who knows. Another word for God. But remember, this word, who intensively knows. So like I said, it's a path one is to follow because the destination is, that's it. 
right? Because uh, the one who knows doesn't tread the path. He, uh, he lights the path for us. So it's walking this path, I mean, arguably continually, that we need to know. So who intensively knows, we strive to embody this. As I said before, like John the Baptist said, I want to make myself less and make him greater. I believe in everything until it's disproved. So I believe in fairies, the myths, dragons. It all exists, even if it's in your mind. Who's to say that dreams and nightmares aren't as real as the here and now? That's John Lennon. I love it because I'm a yoga car and I'm a mind-only sort of guy. So absolutely. If it exists, it exists in the mind alone. But that's the one who intensively knows, knows that also includes our self-sabotage, our doubts, our negative thoughts, our apathy, all born of the mind. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. That's Langston Hughes. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will live as one. Right? It's Becca in Sanskrit, the koinonia, the agape, kenosis. And yet, I've had the weakness, and have still the weakness. I wish you to know with what a sudden mastery you kindled me, heap of ashes that I am into fire. I've talked about this before. You don't have to know. Far too many people want proof. But the real benefit comes in faith. Not blind faith, but it's a love of a potential. Your greater potential. That is what sustains you in even the most hopeless and faithless situations. If it's really a wonder that I wasn't dropped all my... Oh, I'm so sorry. It's really a wonder that I haven't dropped all my ideals because they seem so absurd and impossible to carry out, yet I keep them because in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. That was Anne Frank from the diary of a young girl. Yeah, she didn't survive. And uh, she uh, experienced some good, uh, but overall she witnessed uh, pure evil. And, And that was created by man. There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is only the comparison of one state with another. Nothing more. He who has felt the deepest grief is able to experience supreme happiness. We must have felt what it is to die, Morel, that we may appreciate the enjoyments of life. Live then and be happy, beloved 
children of my heart, and never forget that until the day God will design or deem, sorry, that until the day God will deem to reveal the future of man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope, I argue, in love. There's uh, an expression in Japanese uh, called, uh, or it is, ikigo ikie. And what it means is one meeting, one time. But it's, so rather than learn from bitter experience or missed opportunity, it teaches us that every moment is unique and can never be revisited and therefore should be cherished, no matter what the meaning, uh, no matter what the moment. The often used example is first meetings. You can never, you can never uh, repeat them, but because we treat the first meetings as the first and we don't treat subsequent meetings as important. You cannot swim for new horizons until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. That's William Faulkner. Beautiful. Hope smiles from the threshold of the year to come, whispering, it will be happier. That's Lord Tennyson. And I end with uh, a book that I'm not sure everyone still reads anymore, but but I found it... uh, I found it very important. In fact, what I found was a discussion of phony people. Yeah, phonies. These are these people that walk around and will talk about how, you know, love, and faith, and hope, and they have none of it. Anyway, I keep picturing all these little kids playing some big game in this big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids, and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What what I have to do? I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. I mean, if they're running, and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I'd be the catcher in the rye and all. I know it's crazy, but that's the only thing I'd really like to be. be that catcher in the rye.